Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. I'm here with Corby Cummer and Mark Forstenberg. We're in Washington, D.C. today. And I have to say, we've done 30 of these episodes. We've had so many great chefs on here and others. But I am so excited to have the two of you because I think of the two of you like the one person I would like to bake like and the one person who I would like to write as elegantly as he writes. And I know I have to keep my grammar careful here because I just read a blog post of yours, Mark, about about grammar, about grammar and language and writing. But um, you two are both amazing and you've both been so central to the food world. And the folks who listen to Add Passion and Stir always want to know how people came to what they're doing. And one of the things we've found that we talk about a lot is kind of the circuitous path that is taken. Mark, yours seems to me to be very circuitous. Starting out in government, we were just talking about a stint you did with the Boston Police Department and then at the age of 50, opening up Bread First. Um, and I'm 62. And one of my questions is, is it too late for me if I decide to follow in your footsteps? I hope it's never too late. Well, I would say not because I opened Bread First at the age of of 76. So I think it's probably, okay. probably okay. still so time I'm still ahead. to do it. Okay. Um, tell us how you got into bread. I uh, You didn't start there. No. I, I baked bread for the first time. Uh, at a summer camp in Vermont, a Quaker camp, where I had been a camper once or twice. And during um, my college freshman year, I thought it would be fun to go back there. And the only job they made available to me was assistant cook in the boys' camp. And that seemed okay because I had made sandwiches for myself and my siblings. So why not? And I went to Vermont, and in the third or fourth, second, third, fourth week, the uh, the chef, uh, who was a school chef someplace in Vermont, uh, disappeared. And they asked me if I would take over the kitchen. They really couldn't fill the position with anybody qualified. And I I said I would, but I was I was anxious about it. I was. Cooking, I would be required to cook three meals a day for 150 campers and their counselors. And when was this? What, 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 what 19, year? 1957. 1957. Yeah. You were how old? I was 19. 19. Okay. Okay. But And that was fun. And I went back to college and I cooked uh, for a short order place in the town and I cooked uh, for the co-op dormitory. But uh, when I got out of college, I didn't imagine... I would ever cook professionally again. I cooked for dinner parties and I cooked for um, my children. Uh, but uh, you know, I found myself as I reached my 50th birthday writing for the Washington Post and being unhappy with what I, I, I was doing. I had run a copper tubing company in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I discovered doing that in the early 80s that I had a special uh, a, a, a special feeling for making a product. I'd never made anything before. I had written a lot and I had been a consultant and written reports, but I had never made anything that I could hold in my hand. And when I found myself writing for the Post in the late uh, mid to late 80s, I thought 
I was missing something. I, I didn't feel what real writers like Corby feel. I felt as though I was talking about other people's experiences and not having my own. And so I decided to open a bread bakery. Corby, um, you're an amazing writer, um, and you've chosen to write a lot about food, although you write about many other things as well. I think between the two of you, um, there's six James Beard Awards, five Corby for journalism uh, and food, and you've got one for being outstanding baker, which is pretty pretty big deal. Uh, but Corby, you know, when I try to um, pinpoint what you do, there's almost too much to even put in a sentence. I know you as Boston Magazine food critic. I know you as Atlantic Monthly writer. You're now doing work with the Aspen Institute. Tell us where the passion for food started with you. Well, thank you. And I love the people who make food and their generosity, which I think is something that Mark exemplifies in everything he does and the career turn he took at age 52. But early on, I love the connection between the technical fascination of, for example, following Julia Child's recipes, following a teaching cookbook like Mastering the Art of French Cooking or her From Julia Child's Kitchen. Everybody has a cookbook or two that they've cooked through every page of, and mine was uh, From Julia Child's Kitchen, hmm. which was a personal and looser but still very instructive book. Uh, by Julia Child as she was sort of entering her late phase of books. Also Jacques Pepin's La Technique um, and Marcella Hazan's Essentials, uh, now called Essentials of Italian Cooking, but then Classic Italian Cooking. So once there were these teachers, it was like learning a craft. It was like being a carpenter. It was making something. And as I discovered the love of making things in a house uh, where food had been very important, uh, too important, I would say, as many people in my generation had mothers who should have been in the workforce using their minds and their educations and instead were making perfect food and having dinner parties and things that were not challenging them intellectually. So I grew up in a house where food had been overly important, I would say, in retrospect. But I inherited that importance and that love of making something. And I discovered that other people were immensely generous. They wanted to share and that their psyches and histories came out in their making of food. Uh, when I say that, for example, I learned that a lot of the cooks who were writing the books I admired had grown up in households where their mothers were terrible cooks and they learned how to cook out of self-defense or as a way <laughs> of doing of something that like their that. parents could not do. Uh, which was a way of achieving and showing their families, here's something I can do, or out of general necessity. But it was the need to cook, the impulse to make food and share it, which always was common. It was wanting to make people enjoy something and share your love of something. But it came from very different places in people. And I discovered that I loved that. And I gravitated more and more to the people who wanted to make a link between the people who grew food and produced it and how that got to the table. So early on, I would write about um, Rick Bayless in Chicago or Alice Waters in California, uh, who would force me to go to farms. And I 
discovered I loved meeting farmers. I loved people who raised animals. I uh, had the early pilgrimage that every food writer does of being at several animal slaughters, which you have to do, and it's not for some kind of macho thrill. It's to understand if I am eating meat, I have to see where this was raised, and I have to see how the animal was killed and how it exactly got to my plate. So I I tried to be pretty early on in that. Um, Even though I didn't raise animals in my backyard, I never went that far with backyard chickens. But it was the connection between how food grows, which in my house, and I would say most households of the people I knew as children, was completely broken. It was from the supermarket. Nobody had any idea. And that led to caring about idealism and the people who make food. Um, So it's this journey that many and young people now just take it in a minute. They're immediately concerned about social justice, about the people who make their food, about the cleanliness of the sourcing of their food in a way that took, I think, those of us who began with sort of gourmet food a long time to evolve toward. And I come from a different generation and Uh, My earliest memories of my mother preparing food were during World War II when I was was four years old, and my mother had been raised in a uh, more or less upper-class German-Jewish family in Baltimore, and her family had a cook, and the cook was very talented. My mother had never cooked. And when we were thrust into the war and assigned to rural West Florida, the panhandle, my mother had to learn to cook, uh, and the only resource she had, other than her own ingenuity, was the settlement cookbook, which was the cookbook. This is Simon Kander. Right, exactly right. So my mother did take some pride in her cooking, but... In a sense, we come from different generations in that respect because it was only after World War II that business, big business, began to try to persuade women that they were far too good. They were too important. They had too many resources, and they should not be confined to cooking. Corby, I've had the great pleasure of going on a couple of your dinners where you do a review and as I recall you have maybe eight or, eight or ten people at the table everybody orders something different and you taste things from some different plates and then you write it um, give us kind of the inside scoop what are you looking for what what is a restaurant critic who's as serious as you who takes it the responsibility as seriously as you do look for I have to say sitting on the opposite side of the table it was it was a mystery to me. You were enigmatic. You'd take one little taste of something that was so small that I wouldn't have even known if it would have hit my, my, you know, my taste sensors. But you were able to form opinions. How does it work? How does that process work? Well, first of all, I try. I generally try to keep it to two to four people. Sometimes six, but four people is kind of the ideal because you can really keep track of everything. Uh, and also eat everybody else's food at the same time. Mark has very, very frequently gone on review meals, so he's a completely seasoned expert on this. Um, I take many small bites of food, and one of the odd secrets is the worse the food is, the more you have to eat it to understand why it's bad. Why it's so bad. (laughs) And you have to go back 
uh, you know, the minimum number for a responsible review is three visits. Okay. And you have to order the bad dish every time because you have to know, was it an off night? You have to make sure it's bad. Gen- exactly. Before you knock something, you have to know there's reason to knock it and that it's not just one bad night. If it's one bad night, you still need to say it. But you need to find out, is this the way it always is? So you're trying and to say a little bit more about what's good and what makes it good or bad. Oh, I would say a balance of flavors, the right temperature, which very few chefs get right. It's as food becomes more and more manipulated, it's less and less hot. So it's less and less pleasing. And you feel like I would much rather eat something that has a good balance of texture and flavor and heat rather than something that looks beautiful, which is kind of important, but not really important. You know, eye appeal is enormous, importantly part, but so is fragrance and fragrance gets lost when things have been manipulated and tweezed and kind of uh, put on the plate. So it's very pretty and very good for Instagram photographs, which is more and more important to dining today, Mm -hmm. but not particularly good for eating. So what's the actual experience of eating something? Corby, could I ask ask Corby a question? We've seen, or we are now seeing, the decline of, of, of newspapers or their increasing limitation of resources, which means that um, food writing and particularly restaurant criticism is becoming thinner and thinner in this country. Um, does this matter to it? It matters a lot to me. It matters to you. It matters to the three of us. But is it important to the diner who goes out to a restaurant just to get away from um, to get away from the home or to have a, a pleasurable experience? This, this is terribly important. The, the disappearance, the gradual disappearance of really good and varied restaurant criticism to all of us in the food business. But I wonder if it's if it's generally important. Restaurant criticism is indeed disappearing, but I've been engaged in a lot of online debates, and they're not going to end. I mean, I I will continue to engage in them. I've always thought the importance of a restaurant critic is really central to a community of cooks and diners to say, you know, here's the history of food here. Here's what you're likely to feel. A critic has consistent taste. And so Tom Sitsuma here in, in Washington Pete Wells in New York. But, you know, if you've noticed, Pete Wells is a fabulous stylist. This is the New York Times writer. For the New York Times. And it's really style and opinion that guides. And when I say opinion, it's opinion in every way. What's the sociological history? His predecessor, Sam Sifton, who's the food editor of the Times, made made the restaurant review in the Times kind of a piece of social criticism. Here's where New York's arts and business and media community is or is not. And here's what the uh, kind of trend makers and tastemakers of New York are going to think based on this. And it was sociology. Uh, And that he was like a a newsroom beat reporter applied to restaurants with a tremendous interest in and skill for food. Pete Wells is more purely interested in food, but he also has a wonderful reverence for New Yorker writing and wonderful American stylists of the of the let's say 30s to 70s um but as far as the importance of restaurant criticism to the diner 
I have been so angry at and, you know, battling the tyranny of Yelp. But now I see it as a consumer service, too. Even though there's so much wrong with online crowdsourced reviews, as in what are the hidden prejudices of this person, they're know-nothings. They watch reality TV, which has nothing to do with actual food. They don't know anything about food. There's a part of me that now says, if they are reliable guides for the person who wants to know, will I enjoy this restaurant, they are performing a service for those people. And I think that ultimately the service to diners and what should keep restaurants alive is, is this something that people think is worth their money? There is a kind of a democratization to it in a way. I'm thinking of our staff at Share of Strength, which is skews very young. They're probably between 25 and, and 35. I'll bet not many of them read Pete Wells, but uh, almost all of them are on Yelp or uh, Eater or lots of other online sources. And so... As a as somebody who is works to be thoughtful about your reviews uh, and to really pull together all the elements of what a meal is about, as opposed to a you know a quick post that says you know not worth it or was worth it, how do you how do you integrate that into your thinking? I'm very sorrowful about it. For example, one of the best experiences of my career was for two and a half years I was the restaurant critic for Atlanta magazines because my spouse worked for the Centers for Disease Control, which is in Atlanta. And I had an editor there I will name, Steve Fennessy, from Atlanta, the editor of the City Magazine, Atlanta Magazine, who tore apart every sentence I wrote. Now, I had been a restaurant critic for almost 20 years at Boston Magazine. I'd had some very good editors. But nobody who had the rigor and wouldn't let me get away with anything that my editor Atlanta did, at, at Atlanta did, it made me a much better critic and writer. And so I, I re-fell in love with the discipline mm. of writing. And I wrote some very famous pans and I wrote some famous raves that established a restaurant called Staple House, the first four-star review in five years for Atlanta Magazine. And uh, Food & Wine named it Best New Restaurant in, in, in America. And so did, uh, I think it won a James Beard Award. It was thrilling to be part of this. It's thrilling to have a voice in the community. It's so important when you want to support young talent um, and want to have a platform to help them out. But there's now not a restaurant review at Atlanta Magazine. It mm. got sold. The budget got cut. And there's a wonderful food editor there named Julia Bainbridge who's doing terrific stuff but not restaurant reviews because it's really expensive. The Boston Globe has it down to once a month. There's fabulous Deborah First, who's an inventive, terrific writer, and she writes food columns, but it's only one review mm. a month because these are expensive things to do. Yeah. I um, I don't share uh, Corby's respect for the democratization of uh, reviews. Um, uh, resignation. Uh, pardon? Resignation and respect. Resignation and... Attempt respect, strain, strained respect. Um, I don't read Yelp. I haven't. I won't. Um, I'm un I'm uninterested in what people say about the food, bread, and pastry that we produce. And Mark, when you said certain things <clears throat> are important to you, uh, it it sounded like you were almost talking about the work as uh, as art as much as commerce in a way. I mean, I was thinking of like a novelist who 
who writes for himself or herself and you know the critics are not as important it's kind of their expression what are the things that are important to you in terms of what you're trying to do with the bakery um there are some things that are are, are nutritional for example i i um, experiment with whole grain breads i do that because they are nutritionally um, of greater value than white breads like the baguette or the paladin's bread, which is essentially a ciabatta, a light white bread. I want to do the best things that I can do, but do them in a way that makes them as good as they can be from my perspective. Tom Sietzema criticizes us all the time for baking up uh, croissant too dark. He's wrong. Our croissants are baked just as they should be. Uh, who am I to, um, to say that a food critic is wrong? Well, I'm a food maker. Why shouldn't I uh, be able to indulge my own judgment? So the way to judge for yourself, if you're listening, bread first on Connecticut Avenue, F-U-R-S-T, though, F-U-R-S-T. Um, is, the way, is the way to find it. And uh, Corby, I was telling... Uh, Mark earlier that I live at Connecticut in Cathedral, so just a few blocks away, and I'm in Bread First constantly, and of course, love it. Uh, but one of the things I said to you, Mark, was I said it's it's really been a gift to the neighborhood, and you kind of lit up. This is right before we started recording, and I want to talk about this kind of other dimension of food because there is a community building aspect to I think what you do, and certainly the many of the ideas that you've been behind. Corby, say a little bit about what your intention was for Bread First as it relates to the community. I am a dinosaur. I grew up in a family that ate two meals a day together. And that community aspect, the familial aspect, was part of enjoying food. Even when my father came home in a foul mood and was imperious at the table, which frequently was the case, we ate our meals together. And the disappearance of that or the diminution of that is very sad for me. Extending that, a bakery or indeed a hardware store can be a community builder. I chose to do bread first um, in a neighborhood that I knew something about as my first bakery had been nearby, and it was the neighborhood in which my sister had built a monumentally important community uh, feeling. This is around politics and prose, the iconic bookstore, not just iconic in Washington, but nationally. My sister had done that so well with books. I really wanted to do it with bread, and I had confidence, knowing the neighborhood a bit, that people would respond to what we did if it was good. And they responded so much more quickly, so much uh, more deeply than I expected. Thank you for doing this for our neighborhood is something that I hear nearly every day. Uh, and I'm speaking literally when I say that someone says to me, I'm so glad you did this in our neighborhood. That is, um, that's the most important thing to me. 
Um, and I think that's why I fell in love with food. It's the people who build community at their own table, as, for example, Julia Child did. She was a wonderful hostess, and she, you just felt included. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that a lot of us fell in love with Italy and, say, the south of France is that, especially in Italy, when you go to a bakery one day, the next day they greet you like an old friend, an old customer. You are part of that community. And whenever I go to a new city and you have built it, I look for the bread first. I look for the place that values community. And, you know, I feel when I go into bread first that I can talk to anybody. <clears throat> We've all selected the same place. I would say even Je ne sais quoi, this wonderful French pastry shop in my own neighborhood or in my neighborhood of Jamaica Plain in Boston. And here's an odd thing. There's Cafe Nero, which is an international chain base in London, and yet the local franchise owners have built a place where people work together in such harmony, like a place called Toscanini's, the best ice cream on the East Coast, I would say, in Cambridge, Mass., where there's a community every day of people who come in, they study there, they work there, they set up shop, they come to know each other, and there's nothing more important, especially in an age where people telework and they're not necessarily. It's coming together over food and sharing life and sharing views accompanied by food. Is that one of the reasons bread is so important to you? Because Corby um, has more, it seems to me, has more feeling, and I don't say this merely as a bread baker, more feeling for bread than anything else he eats. I have always loved bread, and I do have the motto, I break for bakeries. Um, <laughs> but I love it. I, I, I was a baker very early on, um, and I think there's nothing more infinitely satisfying and malleable than bread. It changes every day when you bake it. I want to taste people's different breads every day, and I could happily do it my entire life. If my sister Debbie were here, she would be telling you, because uh, she teases me about this a lot, uh, our, we grew up in a family super loving family, but with a mom who was a very bad cook. Uh, my dad made breakfast, and what he made for me every morning was 12 slices of toast. Uh, literally, he just stood at the toaster, and in those days, they didn't have the four-slot toasters. They only had the two, and he just stood there, and he buttered and cream-cheesed toast. And then I went to school. I went to a public school and in a cafeteria. For 72 cents, you could buy six plates of two rolls each. Or you could pay 25 cents and get your whole lunch, but I just bought the six plates of two rolls each. So I had 10, 10 or 12 slices of bread every morning and then 10 or 12 rolls. Wow. So bread has been my wow. passion. And I yeah, I mean, I, I kind of knew that you were passionate about it. I didn't know uh, until he hearing Corby talk about yeah, it. Yeah, when we, we on, on those occasions when Corby and I were parts of trips that we were treated to by an organization called Old Ways, Corby was almost always the first person out of the bus and always looking for a bakery. Last question I have for you. Um, we talk a lot here about the intersection of food with so many other things we care about, just as we're talking about it now with mm -hmm. sustainability of the environment um, and carbon footprint. Uh, also, its relationship to our health, its relationship to the opportunity kids have to really absorb an education, which they can't do if they're hungry, one of the priorities for Share Our Strength. Given the um, the shock to our political system over the last 10 months. Um, as two social justice champions, how do you think about the work you do and how it responds to the politics 
of the moment. I was with a group of restaurateurs just last night who were talking about DACA and the Dreamers and how many people in their industry are affected, how many really great workers they have, and how, how the restaurant industry in this particular moment is in many cities having a crisis just in terms of finding employees to work in the in the back of the house, in the kitchen, and how uh, you know counterproductive they think this DACA move is. But in general, as two, as two champions for uh, food done well, uh, how do you think about it in relationship to the politics, and I, we're talking about your sister Carla Cohen, who had a, a bookstore politics and prose. Um, I know that you've got political instincts and political passions. Um, I we're 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 different from everybody else. I think in that we live in Washington, where people live and breathe politics all the time. So it's impossible for someone who sees. A lot of people, uh, as I do in my in my bakery, not to be affected by the political climate, which is uh, uh, which is in this city, as far as I can tell, is unanimous. I think we all worry. Um, peop- those of us who have liberal um, who have liberal politics or left of liberal politics. I think we all worry about the what's going to happen to envir- our environmental concerns, and we're seeing that happen now. I think we also worry a lot about the uh, reductions in support for poor people in this country. I, I feel particularly acutely like about this because I worked with poverty early in my career, and and, and concern about poverty in this country has been... Uh, a lifelong uh, passion, and I'm equally irritated by Democrats as I am by Republicans because the word poor has disappeared from the political vocabulary in this country. We never talk about poor people. Um, Hillary Clinton went through an entire campaign without using the word poor. The poor have become the middle class, and and our politicians, particularly Democrats, I think, talk about the welfare of the middle class, um, and and that is a concern. But it infuriates me as someone who deals all the time with food, which is often the most basic concern of poor people, that we don't any longer worry about the poor. It's hard to get poverty into the national conversation. How do you think about this, Corby? Uh, I think about it all the time, and I'm lucky enough to teach at Boston University and now uh, Tufts University, where I send my students uh, to restaurants to interview uh, workers who are from Mexico, for example. And I was really lucky enough to have a Puerto Rican immigrant who uh, needed food stamps, and I asked her to go apply for food stamps. This was after Trump was elected, and there was lots of worried about uh, ICE crackdowns, and she knew people who were keeping This is a student from, of yours? This was a student. Mm-hmm. People who would not go to the SNAP office because they were afraid of being reported or trapped by uh, immigration control agents. So I'm going to – I'm just starting term next week, and I'm going to continue this with class projects. So I'm trying to keep my own ear to the ground through young students who are actually 
uh, in contact with these people or need food stamps themselves. So it's a, it's a constant concern. Uh, and for restaurant days, our friend Jose Andres, who kept his restaurants closed for a day, as many others did in solidarity with immigrants, a day without immigrants. So uh, this is something that every restaurant owner and food supplier and somebody who cares about food has to take on for themselves. And I think that uh, personal responsibility is so much more important than we want it to be. But in the absence of government leadership, has to be. It does. It becomes more important than ever. To, yeah. To be specific about this, um, we have leftover food every day. We have uh, leftover bread every day. Every restaurant I know has leftovers that they would like to be able to donate. We don't have the structure that's what government should do. We don't have the structure to donate our food to people who need food. And by the structure, I mean a system of pickup and delivery, which is far too expensive to be created, constructed by anything other than a government. But we become so anti-government and anti-tax in this country that we don't build something that would be of immense benefit to so many people in need. Yeah, and as you know, Mark, there's private efforts like DC Central Kitchen, but without public the public support that you're talking about, it's almost impossible for them to get to scale. Um, we're running out of time. I want to thank you both so much for being here. Corby Cummer, your persuasive writing can be found both in the Atlantic, online, you're on Twitter. At C. Cummer. Uh, at C. Cummer and at the Aspen Institute's Ideas Magazine. Um, and Mark Forstenberg, Fred First, can't here in Washington, D.C. Hopefully you can be found in the kitchen um, creating new new pleasures for all of us. So thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Kerry Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.